There's been much discussion over the last two or three weeks about revival. On February the 8th in a routine chapel service, as you probably know, at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky, 18 students remained after the chapel service to pray. And as the prayer time continued, the longer it continued, the more people circled back and began to join those students in prayer. And soon, music broke out as prayers were being offered to the Lord and Bible reading was presented and people were confessing their sins to one another and returning, repenting to Christ that they might walk afresh and anew with him. And then it started to spread to other campuses as other students wanted to experience Christ in a, in a new way. Even in Birmingham, nightly at Sanford University, there were student-led gatherings of worship and prayer and Bible reading and time of open confession and repentance. I love the fact that there was no production to it. It wasn't pre-planned, pre-scheduled in some way. There was no performance. It was very um, authentic, uh, very spontaneous in the moment. There was an eagerness for authentic worship and hearing God's word. And then in hearing God's word being read, aligning their lives to his word, repenting of things that were not of God and embracing those things that were of him. And when I was reading about those reports, and probably many of you, the first report that I read that was coming out of Kentucky, I just quickly breathed a prayer, oh God, do it in me. Oh God, stir afresh in our church among our people. Couldn't help to be grateful for them and what they were experiencing and long for the Spirit's movement afresh among us as well. We begin a series called Cultivating Our Hearts, Cultivating Your Hearts on February the 5th. I had no idea the providential movement of God that would begin to be revealed just a few days after that in other places in the country. Like so many churches, I think God has been preparing us for a movement of his spirit, a reviving of the people, a fresh understanding of the life of Christ and what he has afforded us in the resurrection and what he offers to us by his Holy Spirit. I didn't recognize the fullness of what God would begin doing in other places in the world as we were thinking about, God, would you do this in us? Would you cultivate our hearts that we might more gloriously bear fruit to Christ Jesus by living for him, not for us? So his spirit has challenged us to cultivate our hearts with his word with our hearts being like fertile soil that the gospel and the word of God gets planted into and so nourished that it just flourishes a hundred time fold. So we continue this theme of cultivating our hearts. And as we've done so, I'm grateful that I I didn't tell you ahead of time what we're going to be doing every Sunday because the spirit of God has preempted about half of those. And you'd say, oh, no, that's not the one you're supposed to be on. Uh, this one is, is uh, preempted by the Holy Spirit as well. It's cultivating our hearts with spiritual longing, just with a spiritual longing. So let's open our Bibles to the Old Testament, to Second Chronicles. 
Uh, as you're flipping through the Old Testament from Genesis, you're just moving along and you'll get to Kings and then after Kings, you'll find the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. Go to the Second Chronicles and let's look at a very familiar verse to you. A verse that comes at a historical moment in the life of Israel and the nation of Israel. If you remember the history of that, Solomon has just completed the temple. Now it was David's desire to build the temple unto the Lord. But uh, God said, no, it won't be you doing that. It'll be your son. So God actually gave David the wealth and David generously gave the wealth in order that the temple could be built. And so Solomon has completed the temple and at the conclusion of that, he has a dedication service and man, the spirit of God just poured out. It was the Shekinah glory of God that was falling like fire from heaven and just consumed the offerings, the burnt offerings there at the, before the, temp, uh, the temple itself. And the people were just awestruck at God manifesting himself in such a way. And then there was a seven-day period of feasting. That's a celebration of God. There's this solemn assembly that comes on day eight. But prior to that, there is a feasting among the people. By the way, when we're talking about spiritual longing and God developing in our heart, he will do so with periods of fasting and periods of feasting. Uh, you might think more about fasting than you do feasting, or maybe you think a lot more about feasting than you do fasting, but you often don't put the spiritual longing in the midst of that. Listen, God wants to developing us spiritually the work of his Holy Spirit through fasting as well as through feasting. What, what do you mean through fasting? And what do you mean through feasting? Fasting is doing away, saying nothing matters in my life, supreme to God and his spirit's movement in my life. And the feasting is, man, everything that matters in my life is the goodness of God. So I'm just going to celebrate that with a grand feast. And so God brings feasting and fasting and he's calling them to feast for seven days. And after the seven, seventh day, they have an eighth day, a Solomon assembly before the Lord. But then following that week in a day, 2 Chronicles chapter 7 tells us that the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, listen to what God said after this, season of feasting. And then that solemn assembly, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. And he's saying, I will heal their land. In essence, God is instructing Solomon about his judgment that would come as the people disobeyed him and embraced false gods. And then he would stop the rain he would send the locusts and he would commission pestilence among the people so that they might turn again to him and that they might humble themselves and pray and seek his face again and turn from their wicked ways so that God in response to their humility, their longing for him spiritually would hear them, who would forgive them and heal 
the land again. It would be God's judgment that would prompt humility. And in the humility response that God has called for, prescribed here, that he would respond in his mercy. Where you have the judgment of God extended, at least in this season of history and ours, where you have the judgment of God extended, you have the mercy of God offered. There's hope. You're sensing the weightedness and the lostness of your life. For you who are not in Christ, listen to me, there is hope. There is hope in Christ because God is bringing justice. But at the same measure of his extension of justice, Jesus is just and he's offering mercy in love. And he's saying, come to me. I'll bear the weight of justice prescribed for you. I'll bear that wrath so that you might live justified. By his own word, you might live justified. How is that transaction brought about? By faith. Receive that by faith. Just trust him by faith. So amid the judgment of God, God is offering mercy to them if they would humble themselves, seek his face, pray, turn from their wickedness. And God would forgive and heal so can this text be a guide for us who are seeking revival in our lives, a fresh life of Christ evident in us? Is this text one that can offer us a guide? I believe it can. Now, it is not prescriptive. It is not formulaic. In other words, you can't just bring these things about in your life and voila, the Lord does something mysterious in your life, something incredible in your life. It's not meant to be that. In fact, in all honesty, the Holy Spirit did not write this with you and me in mind. He wrote this specifically for Israel, who were living in the land that God called them to live in. He wrote it to a people that he said, I want to be your God. You will be my people. He wrote it to that group of people. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have some general guidelines for us, because I believe it does. It gives us a rhythm by which if you and I will live then uh, the Lord certainly will respond. I believe that he'll respond in, in unique ways. So what we're seeking is revival. Can this text be helpful for us as we are seeking revival, as God is cultivating in our heart? The late Christian historian Earl Cairn says in his definition of revival, listen to it, the work of the Holy Spirit, this is revival, the work of the Holy Spirit in restoring the people of God to a more vital spiritual life, witness and work. Anybody want a more vital spiritual life, witness and work unto God? Then you're seeking revival. If you're longing for those things, you are longing for revival. That is the life of Christ to be evident in you, alive in you and evident in you. And he says, if that's what you're seeking, a vital spiritual life, witness and work by prayer and the word after repentance in crisis for their spiritual decline. Now, I think that's a good working definition because it draws people to understand that before you get to the cheers of revival, you have to go through the crisis of recognizing your spiritual decline. Are you in spiritual decline? 
Are you spiritually stagnant? Well, I can tell you if you're not moving forward unto the things of God, if your life is not more shaped by Jesus today as it was yesterday, then you're spiritually stagnant and probably spiritually declined. And if you're in that place and you have a holy unsettledness about that, then ask the Spirit of God to stir in you new life. Ask him to bring you to a revived sense, a renewed sense in Jesus Christ. Ask him for that kind of grace. So you're going to have to, though, go through tears. And I'm not talking about tears of rejoicing that revival has occurred. I'm talking about tears of agony and sorrow over your sin and need for repentance. You've got to go through the agony before you get to the glory. That has been a reoccurring theme in my heart for the last week. Not just in preparation for this, but in preparation for the Wednesday lesson that I was teaching. And just in my heart in general, you've got to go through tears of sorrow before you go to tears of rejoicing. Now catch this. You've got to be real careful when you're praying for revival. Don't long for the tears of the rejoicing of the revival without first going through the tears of sorrow. The tears of sorrow is so important for us to have genuine revival. So true revival actually begins with agony. Fabricated, revivalesque gatherings forego the humility and the sorrow and the repentance required of God for him to heal brokenness. Sometimes people move to the celebration of God's goodness, calling that revival, while they gloss over the grossness of their sin. And God is saying, if I'm really going to stir in your heart revival, you've got to come to an understanding of sin in your life. Because that's what's impeding the fellowship. That's what's impeding this revived life. While I was praying last Monday with some others for God's movement in our lives, as well as the life of this church and community, a thought came down uh, into my mind, just settled into me. And I, I just stopped my prayer time, pulled out my Bible, pulled out a scrap piece of paper, which is probably my notes, and just r jotted down what, what I sensed the impression was that was coming to my mind at that moment. And it was this, don't desire the revival experience more than the God of the revival. So though it's not a formula, 2 Chronicles 14 was a prerequisite for Israel and it's a pattern for us to follow as we seek God and seek his reviving work in our lives. So let's consider 2 Chronicles 7.14 as our active role in God's act of grace to revive us. Now that being the case, I want to ask you, are you in a position to experience God's revival. Are you in a position to experience him fresh and anew? So I want you to know that revival does not rain down randomly like a summer shower. People have a misconception about that, asking God just to rain down as if it's May in the South. He's not going to just rain down like a summer shower. It doesn't happen indiscriminately among some people. It's not like a pop-up summer shower where it just kind of happens. Instead, revival comes to people who are in pursuit of Christ and the abundant spiritual life that 
He longs to give us, it's us longing for that spiritual revival of fellowship with him and the richness of his word and the movement of his missions and ministry to his glory. It's for people who are called by his name, who humble themselves and pray and seek his face and turn from their sinful, wicked ways. Are you a candidate for revival? Not just asking God to do something indiscriminately to you, but are you a candidate? Are you positioning yourself where God would say, I want to stir in you. Your heart is fertile. The soul of your heart has been cultivated by my word and by my spirit and by your willingness and longing for me. I want to bring revival to you. I like the way one person posed a question similar. Is my life in such a state that God would, could be pleased to send revival to my heart, to my home, to my church and my community? Would God be pleased to do that in me? Because if you're still holding on to some sin, some habitual sin in your life, God's not going to be pleased to share his glory with you in the midst of that. He's not going to share his glory. He's not going to put you in a position where you're going to constantly think you've got two masters. You can only have one master and it must be Jesus. Are you rightly positioned for God to do a work in your heart? For God to bring revival to your life? Well, let's, let's just use... This rhythm, this footprint that God laid down for Israel. When you, when you drifted from me, when you've rebelled against me, when you've sought things other than me, this is what you must do. Here's the rhythm. Know who you are. If you're in faith in Christ, know that you belong to God. Now listen, unsaved people are not candidates for revival. If you're, if you're not saved, if you know that, you're, you're not in relationship with God. You've come into this place because you're, you're hungry for that, you're interested in that, or you just, you've got some questions about that. And, and, and by God's Spirit, He has drawn you here. We're grateful that you're here. And if you're here in that place, you're here because God is already moving upon you. You may not know it yet. You may not understand it, but you didn't just happen here. No, God has sovereignly ordained you to be here that you might hear about him and be drawn to him to identify your sin and the need for righteousness. You, you've come because God has placed on you a weightedness of conviction of your sin and you can't come out from under that. You may be trying to get better. You might be trying to pitch this out of your life or start this in your life and you're ending up frustrated. So you're here saying there's got to be more to it than this. There is. We're grateful you're here, but you are not a candidate for revival. You don't have life to be revived. You were just like me in 1973, spiritually dead. You can't revive what's dead. You've got to have new life. And I'm not talking about new life like your parents gave you. I'm talking about life that is from above, life that comes from heaven. I'm talking about a spiritual birth that comes from heaven. You need to be, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, born again, born of the Spirit. And God has a word for you. And it's a good news. Listen, his word to you in Romans chapter 3 says that we all sin and fall short of his glory. 
His word to you is chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us. While we are sinners, Christ died for us. His word for you is 623 of Romans. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. His word for you is when you receive him by faith that there would be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His word is extended to you to act in faith. Faith in chapter 10 verse 9. To confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And in doing so you will be saved. That's his word for you today. So receive him by faith. Surrender your life to him. He will make you to be born again from above. Some of you are in need of that. And so I'm praying today for you. I've already prayed for you and I'm going to pray at the end of this service for you. That God is calling and you're responding in faith. And you too will have new life in him. Now many of you have trusted in Jesus and you have been saved by him, by his grace, but your life is not walking with him. In fact, your life is far from him. Nobody compares your life to that of Jesus. Nobody points out that you're a lot like him. In fact, uh, you find yourself being oppressed in sin. And some of that sin is habitual. It's been there for a long time. I'm just being honest with you. There's very little evidence of the Holy Spirit living in you. The light of the Spirit does not shine in you. It's evident because you don't share your faith in Jesus Christ because you have little faith right now. It's evident because you don't seek the kingdom of God. You find yourself seeking the kingdom of this world a whole lot more and trying to build up riches there. You find yourself not living unto the glory of Christ, but living unto your own glory. In fact, you don't even sense the love, joy, and peace of Christ, which is the beginning of the evidence of the Spirit of God living in you. That is all dampened down, diminished in your life. And you may wonder, is revival for me? And God's answer is straightforward and clear to you. Yes. Revival is available to you. It is possible for you who belong to him. And I'm here to tell you today that revival is not just for you. Revival is probable if you will seek him. If you will seek him. It is probable. So part of the Lord's demand is that you know who you are. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, he's saying, come to me. You who are weary, you're worn out, you're heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll make you to be born again from above. I'll put righteousness in you. I'll declare you to be justified before the holy God. Come to me, I'll indwell you. Your life will be radically different, abundant today, and for eternity you'll live with him. Come to me. Know who you are. You're a sinner in need of God's grace. Know who you are. You have received God's grace. Now walk in him. And if you've received his grace and are 
to be walking in him, you need to know that you belong to Christ. You have been bought with a price. Your salvation has brought you out of sin and death and into righteousness and life by his spirit. That life is meant to be abundant, not just eternity in eternity for the future, but abundant today in Christ. He shares his resurrection with you that you might walk in the newness of life. So walk in the newness of life. Oh God, revive us that we might walk in the newness of life. You are not your own, but have been bought with the price. So glorify God with your body. If you're tuning me out because the sin is so deep into your life, I'm going to ask you just to catch this. God says there's hope. You don't have to continue in the way you are. How do I know that to be the case? His resurrection power. You know the same spirit that resurrected Jesus from the grave is in you? You think he can't overcome your sin? You can't. You think he can't overcome the fornication? He can't overcome the pornography? He can't overcome the adultery? He can't overcome the stealing, the lying, the bitterness, the anger? He can't come, overcome the rage? Sure he can. If he can overcome death, he can certainly overcome those things. So know who you are. Secondly, humble yourself. Now, humility is the only soul for which revival grows. There is no other rooted disposition that revival will grow in. It has to be humility. So you and I know that we come to Christ empty-handed, able to offer him nothing. We have no spiritual worth or value when we come to him. We come to him as paupers just with our hands extended, asking for mercy. Lord, we have nothing to offer you, but you and your love are willing to give me everything. What an amazing truth that is. And when you look around in this place, you see other people who have been spiritual paupers, but now are children of the king. And the king has shared his riches with every person in this room who is, in who is alive by faith in Jesus Christ. So if anybody is boasting in this room, we boast in Jesus, right? We have nothing to boast about other than Jesus Christ. For he is our life and glory. And since we understand that our life and our hope and our treasure in Christ, then we ought to be living humbly. So what does it look like if we're going to live humbly revived? What does that look like? Well, I've jotted down some things for you to consider. This is what it looks like for someone who has sought revival and now walks humbly with God. Or perhaps we could shift it from the other angle and say, this is the way God wants us to look as we continue to seek revival. Considering others more significant than ourselves. Hey, how about just thumping yourself off the number one position? Put Jesus there and put others right behind him. Consider others. Look out for the interest of others as well as looking out for your own interest and be quick to celebrate and praise others. This is what the Bible says it looks like when we walk revived with humility. This is how we take steps. You want revival in your life? Then he says, humble yourself. 
So how about let's take initiative in this. Could I, as I'm just moving through these nine statements, could, could you and I just pray as we're reading them? Oh, yes, Holy Spirit, do a work in me. It would be obvious that you're doing a work in me if these things are evident. Let the humility of Christ be very evident in me. Be conscious of your sins and faults more than you are of others. Man, is it ever easy to point out the sins and faults in other people? Humility says, I see that in me more quickly than I see it in others. Can I just give you a little insight in that? What you see that really aggravates you about the sin in other people's life is the sin in your own life. That's the reason why it's like a, a sore to you, because it's already festered in you. How about just letting the Holy Spirit work that in our heart? Oh, Lord, let me humbly walk in, in your presence and recognize my sin more than I recognize the sin in others. And let me seek opportunities to serve my family and Meadowbrook and others lovingly. For let me be like Jesus who came not to be served but to serve. And let me quick admit when I'm wrong and let me be the first to say, will you forgive me? Oh, Holy Spirit, grieve with me in my sin and let me grieve over it and know how it affects you and our holy relationship. Let me live transparently without pretense, not acting as if I've got everything fine and okay in my life. Let me live transparently before others. And Lord, let me forgive and extend mercy quickly when I'm wronged. Those are the things that identify humility in our life. Now, listen, this is not just the work of the Spirit in our life showing evidence in this way. This is what I'm taking strides into. I want to walk toward humility, and I want to walk in humility. And in both cases, the Holy Spirit is empowering. This is not something you're going to be able to accomplish on your own. But the Spirit will work humility in you. Are you praying that the Spirit would bring humility to you? Are you eager for your life to be humble before him and others? So ask the Lord's grace and empowerment to live humbly. And then seek, pray and seek God's face. I was listening to Nancy Lee DeMoss the other day, and it was about a, two weeks ago, and she said, prayer is a tool of God given to the saints of God through which the will of God is accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. You think she understands prayer is pretty important? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty important. What we've come to recognize is prayerlessness will keep you in spiritual staleness. It's your prayerlessness that keeps you stale. So it's essential that we purposefully pray. And I'm talking about regular, concentrated prayer time. I'm talking a prayer time where you're on your knees and your face is in your hand. And if it's not in your hands, then it's on the ground. Serious praying. Now listen, praying on your drive to work or praying on the treadmill, that's good for conversational prayer. I'm not belittling that. But I've never heard of anybody saying, man, God's spirit stirred in my life and he's brought revival to me. He did it while I was driving down the road or he did it while I was on the treadmill at the gym. Never heard anybody say that. But instead, I hear people that are serious-minded about their prayer life 
who are down on their knees in a posture for prayer, recognizing in humility laid out before God that if he doesn't bring them up and revive them, it won't happen. And so they seek his face in that way. So if you're serious about revival in your life, you got to be serious about prayer. If revival in your home or this church or our community is contingent upon your prayer life, would it ever come? Would it ever come? So prayer and seeking God's face is just inseparable. In fact, we pray because we seek his face. And as we seek him in prayer, in his word, in worship, we are before his presence. Several Bible translations will translate the Hebrew word, which is often translated face, but several of them will do it in a translation called presence, and a word that they'll translate as presence. So seeking the face of God is longing for his presence. So when we're serious about knowing and understanding somebody, what do we do? We look them in the face. One of the things that I love about our grandchildren is they want you to look them in their face. Have you ever noticed that? They'll, they'll take your head and they'll turn it to them. <laughs> and boy, he's got my attention when he does that. He wants to look in my eyes and he wants me to look in his eyes. And when you and your spouse are talking or you and your friend who are serious, when you're talking... If you're not talking eyeball to eyeball, you've lost a measure, haven't you? You've lost a measure of fellowship. It's like you can be somebody somewhere else while that person is talking. Unless you turn and face one another, then you're not anywhere else. You got them. You're locked in on them. You're in their presence and they're in yours. And so you get to know one another all the more. The conversation is really rich when we turn to seek the face of another. So similarly, when we long for God in his presence in prayer, we are longing to know him. We want to know him more deeply. We want to live in him more fully in his presence. So I'm, I, I'm asking that the Lord would help us to to know him, to live before his presence, and in doing so, we will love the things he loves and we will hate the things he hates. Being in his presence, so important. To be sensitive to the Spirit's conviction, quick to confess and repent as you're in his presence. Consider fasting and praying about habitual sin that Christ wants to set you free from and seek the power of the spirit in your, in your prayer time with great freedom. You can walk my friends. So learn to walk by grace before the face of God. And then finally, he says, turn from your wicked ways. In Christ, we are justified and called to walk in righteousness so if you're comfortable with sin and unrighteousness, then you'll be uncomfortable with revival and renewal in Christ in your life. In other words, as long as you're embracing sin, you'll not embrace holiness. And if you're not embracing holiness, you have turned your back on God. And for many of you, you're saying, man, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm wanting to turn attention to God. I certainly want God's attention on me. So turn from your wicked ways, the Lord says. Sinful attitudes and actions significantly affect our fellowship with the Lord. 
So anything that's affecting our fellowship with the Lord, we want to turn away from that and we want to turn to God. Although we have received a new nature and we are born again from above, those of us who are in Christ, that nature, that new nature lives in our old flesh and that old flesh is yet to be glorified, which means it is incredibly corrupt and sinful and challenging to us. And listen, I'm about to wrap this thing up, so zoom back in if you've wandered away. The flesh can gain control of our action and our attitudes and our motives. It can corrupt us unless we delight in Christ and delight to put to death the things of the body, the deeds of the body, and be led by the Holy Spirit to a right fellowship with God then and only then can we walk revived in Jesus Christ. You, you've got to put to death the things of the flesh in order to walk in the new life of the Holy Spirit. So God has brought life to you. Stop dragging around the sinful corpse. Be set free from that old way of life, that old way of thinking, those old habits. Be set free in Christ Jesus. By pursuing the face of God, the word of God, the holiness of God. So listen again to God's call for our life. Humble ourselves. Pray. Seek his face. Turn from our wicked ways. And God will hear and God will forgive and God will heal. So God heals and he hears and he forgives. Revelation chapter 3 verse 20 says to those who are in relationship with him, I stand at the door and knock. You know what he's knocking for? To have fellowship with us. That's the revived life. So Jesus is knocking today. Here we are. Jesus is knocking today saying, won't you open the door and let me have fellowship with you? I can't have fellowship as long as you're embracing the things of the world. I need you to embrace me. And man, I've embraced you. Open the door. Just open the door. You don't have to usher everything out. Open the door and let Christ do the ushering. Open the door and let Christ sweep the place clean. Open the door and let Jesus wash your feet. Open the door to revival. Imagine, if you will, rising early and being in a place of prayer, humble, seeking the face of God tomorrow. Imagine that puts you in a position throughout the day to be on the forefront of thinking of Jesus, constantly engaging him conversationally while you're driving and on your treadmill. Engaging him in worship, quick to respond to his spirit as the spirit's pointing out sin in your life that is not of the new nature of Christ in you. And you quick to agree with him and turn away from that. Imagine your family gathered together, not to watch more of the junk on TV, but gathered together, holding hands, praying together, asking God to do something fresh and new in your family 
Asking God to put your family on mission that very day. Asking God to let your family be insightful to the ministry he wants you to do as a family and you to do as individuals. Imagine for a moment what it will be like when you have the joy and the peace of Christ flowing again and the love of God is filling your heart such that it just is cascading out of you and onto other people. Consider the joy of that moment and consider the glory that is unto Christ when you have unadulterated worship unto him throughout the day. Imagine for a moment when you put your head to the pillow and you say, good evening, Lord. Good night. What a day. I can't wait to wake up and do it again. Imagine what revival would be like for you. See, God is wanting to cultivate our hearts through a longing. And even the faint longing or the burning longing you have in your heart, in your mind right now, that's his grace. He's already at work. Take a step with him. Open the door. Journey with him. Sit down with him. Fellowship. Seek his face in prayer. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Our instrumentalists are going to be moving into place and begin playing. And I wanted us in this waning moments of this time together to just pray. Begin this movement humbling yourself, praying, seeking his face, turning from your sin, wickedness. Just praying. It might be that some of you want to slip out and just come forward. It's not like you can just stay where you are. God is speaking to you and you, you've got to get alone with him. And as a testament of his goodness in your life, stirring in you, longing that is building in you. Some of you are just going to come and you're going to pray like we did in the beginning of the service right here at the steps of this platform. It's you and God being alone Others of you are going to just pray quietly where you are. Some of you may even just turn around and bend your knees, posturing yourself at your seat before a holy God. And just reverently, not moving out of the room as if you're going to get a cup of coffee before everybody else. Just reverently stand. And then move into the position of prayer for the next 90 seconds, two minutes, whatever. We'll just, just pray quietly before the Lord. And then we'll begin to worship him. Oh, Father, in your love and your grace and in your presence, with your spirit, move in us. Let us know you. Know your love and joy and peace and how that's available to every person. Lord, let us flourish in that. Let us flourish in holiness and righteousness and humility. Let us flourish in ministry and mission. Let us flourish unto your glory, I pray. In Jesus' name.